Hey, it's Jed Hearn, host of Wizards, Warriors, and Words. If you're enjoying the writing advice on this show, you might like my new podcast, The Jed Hearn Show, where every week I share the best fantasy writing advice that I've learned from publishing three fantasy novels and a best-selling video game. There's over 12 episodes that you can listen to right away, including my top 10 fantasy books of all time, how to make fantasy names that don't suck, two rules that make writing effortless, and my complete summaries of Brandon Sanderson's and Neil Gaiman's writing classes, and much more. Check it out by searching for The Jed Hearn Show in your podcast app. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Wizards, Warriors, and Words, a fantasy writing advice podcast. I'm Jed Hearn, author of The Thunder Heist. Uh, I'm Rob Hayes, author of uh, this book, which I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll just have to figure that one out. I'm Anna Smith-Spark, uh, author of Court of Broken Knives and the Empires of Death trilogy. And I'm just Dirk Ashton this week, author of the Paternus trilogy. And today we are joined by a very special guest, Anna Smith-Spark. Anna, would you like to I introduce yourself to our audience? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Anna Smith-Spark. I am actually the author of The Court of Broken Knives, The House of Sacrifice, The Tower of Levine's Eye and The House of Sacrifice, which Mike has actually got the wrong way round. He's got books one, book three, and then book two. Where oh, the oh it's a rookie mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike is destroyed within the first 30 seconds of the episode. We're off to a great start. <laughs> so... With Mike Fletcher of a series for Grimdark magazine, which may or may not ever see the light of day at some point, um, because we're the two most least professional people in the history of the universe. Um, I'm pretty proud of it. It's just um, people kept saying things to us like, have you guys actually read the previous episodes before you wrote the next episode? Well, why would we do that? <laughs> um, <laughs> I wouldn't. And yeah, that's me, and I'm going a bit crazy because this is the first time I've spoken to anyone apart from my immediate family for I think about eight months now. Wow. Well, we're all a bit crazy on this podcast, so you'll fit in yes. perfectly. Um, and, and today we're going to be... Uh, what's that, Derek? I, that's, I feel privileged. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a special... We're the first people she's spoken to in like eight months. <laughs> yes. I, think that's a, I think that's a big deal. In quotes there, we're the first yeah. people. Yeah. We're, I mean, yeah, I was going to say, I feel that you've put an unnecessarily high expectation on uh, the quality and sanity of this conversation. But regardless, <laughs> today's episode, we're going to be talking about prose, um, which is the style of words that are appearing in the pages of our books. And we wanted to get Anna on for this episode because she has a very distinctive style to her prose, um, as you would know if you have read any of her stuff. And Anna, I was just wondering if you could kind of talk to us about what sort of makes your prose style distinctive or different from other authors out there um, and how it sort of developed over time and, and met perhaps maybe a little bit about why you like to write in that fashion. Ooh, um... <laughs> Just a long question there, then. Yeah, that was a long question. <laughs> it's right <laughs> in already. <laughs> nearly as long as some of my sentences. Um, I, yes, I write in a very distinctive prose style for modern fantasy. Um, I have seen many reviews describing my book uh, books as Marmite books in that either you find them utterly unreadable 
and read about two pages and realize that you cannot cope with it or you really love it. Um, had one amazing review saying it was the most complicated book they'd had to read since they were made to read um, Mrs. Dalloway at, when they were at secondary school, which um, sadly my editors did not feel comparable to Virginia Woolf, could be put all over my book. But I mean, I am quite heavily influenced by Virginia Woolf. I am heavily influenced by uh, modernist prose and poetry and also classical mythology. Um, I studied classics and I have read the Iliad a very large number of times. I have read small sections of the Iliad in the original Greek, which is not an experience I'd recommend anybody. Um, so yes, that kind of mixture of very kind of archaic um, mythical prose and very kind of modernist, mucking around with language, mucking around with grammar, is probably where I'm coming from. It's not intentional, it just sort of happens. Um, actually, I was having a really massively long conversation on uh, with someone about this, and I'm, I have Asperger's syndrome, and I suspect it's got something linked into that somehow. I kind of, uh, I mean, for me, the prose is, it's about conveying a kind of sense of what's going on. It's about telling the story through the kind of aesthetic sense of the words and through the emotional engagement that they're giving you rather necessarily than just sort of sitting at the action. Um, there are bits I write which are incredibly empurpled. I kind of, I love the kind of early Lovecraft. There's a dream quest era Lovecraft the kind of Lord Dunsany, the sort of, it's not about, there's no, there's no story, there's just kind of incredibly empurpled descriptions of just insanity and fantasy cities and sort of these incredibly bizarre fairy tale worlds, kind of, um, I mean, Moorcock does it in some of the sort of things like the, um, the runestone, the runestaff, that just kind of completely baroque, insane, empurpled prose, just letting you just see this kind of insane fantasy world. And you get that mythology as well, of course, these kind of amazing cities and amazing, um, just incredible stuff where it's not about what's realistic, it's not about what's plausible, it's just about what's just, it's just about trying to create some kind of sense of a totally numinous, totally alien, totally fantastical world. And then I'm also, I'm kind of really influenced also by uh, James Elroy and that kind of you're really getting inside the violence and you're really getting inside how people feel and the kind of emotional visceral experience of of the of kind of combat or sex or pain or grief and trying to kind of write that but um so then you kind of use syntax syntax and the Kate and cadence not so much to kind of convey meaning as to convey the kind of expression and the rhythm. So there's a lot of poetry in my writing. Um, my, my dad is actually a modernist and poet, sort of modernist poet. There's a direct link from him, in fact, back to Ezra Pound. So that kind of going beyond language and going beyond the kind of basic, the kind of going behind the kind of surface meaning of language to kind of use punctuation and the layout of something on the page and the sound of the words and the feel of the words to create meaning. I also think I'm, I suspect, strongly suspect I'm synesthetic, which, um, I mean, I've no idea. I've no idea because I can't you tell you how things. I strongly suspect I'm synesthetic and I think that probably comes through in my writing as well. Could you just uh, define what you mean by synesthetic, please? Oh, I'm um, sorry, syn um, synesthetic, I mean, sorry, whatever it is. Um, when I, I think that words, I taste them or I smell them. <laughs> so I think when I'm writing stuff, sometimes all the different senses get kind of a bit muddled up. So kind of, I mean, I've got no idea. I've no idea whether I'm synesthetic or not. <laughs> it might be everyone experiences that. It's impossible to tell. That's so fascinating. <laughs> I certainly, I, I, I've heard about the phenomenon before, but I, yeah. I don't actually know anyone who has it. So that's, that's really cool. Does that add like a, what does that add to your writing, you think? 
Do you think that like gives you an extra ability to immerse people within your stories? I think it helps me in terms of either helps or hinders in terms of describing things because um so there's a there's a line in a friend of mine was when she reviewed the course broken knife she said there was a line early on in it where something i talk about flowers and the petals of the flowers smell like human skin now she was saying that's just ridiculous human skin doesn't smell for me that's kind of i mean <laughs> just thinking about that i can smell human skin <laughs> Huh. I can smell it and taste it. What does it smell kind like? Really, really intimately. And that kind of experience. I mean, basically, the experience when you're in bed with someone, the smell of them. Mm -hmm. I can feel that and smell that just from that, that right having just from that phrase every time I think about that. Mm -hmm. And I know exactly what's meant by that. And I think other people kind of did in this, or at least could get the sense of, I mean, obviously, it was trying to convey a whole lot of stuff about. It was about some about describing flower a tree in a flower in the city of Saw Lost, which is this kind of incredibly decadent, decaying city. That there's kind of lots of stuff about these sort of incredibly wealthy people, and they're kind of it's a sort of pleasure city. So that kind of notion of these sort of like you know flowers and human skin, and then that leads to kind of sex and flat the flowers rotting, and all of that sort of stuff is there in that image. You can unpack it about kind of but for me it was just a kind of immediate that is a link that I just make mm -hmm. and kind of and I think it's just sort of it wasn't like I was sort of thinking about to make it I just kind of that that was just that's what the word that's just what that kind of it's almost one of the senses that the word flower petal conveys to me and I think kind of I think that is but I'm not sure <laughs> that's so fascinating that just that just sounds so different to what my own um process is do any of the rest of you have a similar thing that goes on like that with yourselves no but i was just gonna i was just gonna comment the the comment that your friend made about you know that's ridiculous um that's that's a a, a common compliment or a common comment from people who like very literal prose mm -hmm. um and literal prose can still be a little bit, um, I mean, you can have like with true window pane kind of uh, literal prose like Sanderson, but you can also have, you know, more, you know, fancier wording that's still literal. But there are a lot of readers who really just like literal prose. They don't, that, you know, that they don't, uh, appreciate, I don't know that they don't get, but they really just don't appreciate um, when you use, you know, various and sundry other techniques to convey feeling, you know, like um, making statements like the, the, the petals and the flowers smell like human skin is just the kind of thing that I love because it like shocks me into a different mindset other than just, you know, total immersion i'm not a big i'm not a big fan of total immersion in books to tell you the truth i like to see the prose i like to be shocked a little bit and to think about to be made to think about things but i think i'm in the minority <laughs> with a with the with you know the vast majority of readers you know i think i'm i'm uh, i'm one of those one of those weirdos Robin, Mike, right. where would you sort of fall on that spectrum? Or is there anything else you want to add on to do? And to be honest, I, I think I'm more, as you described it there, in the sort of Sanderson camp uh, with the sort of um, total immersion. I, I, I think, honestly, I, I believe that prose is probably the weakest part of my writing um, ability in general. Um, I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something I've always tried Stop. to improve. Oh, Dirk. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I, I struggle with the more sort of uh, flowery uh, descriptions, as it were, um, to, to actually just sort of like get my brain to work in that sort of way that I can make those those connections like, you know, sort of like, yeah, as um, flowers smelling like human skin, that's probably something that my brain would never connect. Um, but your, your prose has a specific kind of rhythm and flow to it. It's not strictly just stating what's happening 
Um, yeah, there's very, very bare, sparse prose, which is extremely good. I mean, mm -hmm. the Sanderson's prose is very bare and sparse and not good, although he has a thing that means it is fairly compelling. I mean, I, I remember, I've told this story many times, I remember reading the Mistborn books and I read all three of them in about a week. And I did not sleep. I basically was not sleeping. I was like reading these books. It was like three in the morning. I was reading that. And actually, my brain was just like, this is shit. This is shit. This is the worst book I've ever read. Oh, my God. I've got to, <laughs> I've got to find out what happens. Oh now, my that's God, a I've contentious call. But I have, yeah, but I have to find out what happens. Yeah, there's yeah, a, there's a real, there, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there are real benefits to that technique of writing. I mean, real benefits for, for readers, you know, it's just, it works. It just works, and it works really well. I, and I don't mean to disparage people who don't like um, more opaque writing, but um, because you know that stuff really does really does work. I just happen to prefer um, something a little different. I think for yeah, me, it's no, less I mean, of yeah, a... it's what you want. It's yeah, you know, it's not it's not the kind of way I'd want to write, and it's not. The kind of books I choose to read, but my God, the man is a genius in terms of he can keep he can, he can keep, yeah. you, can keep you reading. Absolutely. Yeah, I it's, think, it's um, sort of... we're touching on an important thing here, which is that like it largely is a matter of personal preference, and there's not really one approach that is better than the others. Because I can certainly, I think within my own writing, I would probably fall more on the side of the sparser stuff, so that you're, I suppose, focusing more on the characters um, and the world and everything. And most of the reading I do would be on that side as well. But at the same time, you know, I love something like The Name of the Wind, where it's sort of just about the prose in a lot of sections of that. So <laughs> it, um, which is not to disparage it, actually. I really actually can appreciate stuff that is sort of just saying, hey, we're going to do this thing now. But I think the important thing here, and this is what we're all touching on, is that knowing like what you want to focus on, whether that is trying to create something really emotionally compelling from the prose, or if it's trying to focus on having the suspense and the twists and the plot there to drag you through your story. So how do you, I suppose, decide like what type of prose you want to have in, in your stories? Or is it that much of a conscious decision? Or is it just like a you have this style that sort of flows out of you organically? So for me, I mean, I don't... I don't think about it at all. Um, I have never thought about the way I write. I've never thought about... So there are obvious different voices and different kind of... There are different styles of writing depending on which character I'm writing in the trilogy. And then in some of the short stories I've written, there have also been very different sort of styles of writing. I wrote a short story in... Uh, Blackguards, I wrote, uh, it was called Knaves, a Blackguards anthology. And that, from the point of view, that was a kind of prequel story for Tobias. And that just, I didn't, I wasn't sort of like, I will, I've, obviously, when I was writing a story about kind of Knaves, the first character who came to mind was okay about going back to Bias. Yes, that's it. So, there it yes. is. No, it's the second one, it's Rose. It's the second one. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> that just came out when I'm writing Tobias's voice. That came comes out in a very different style to say. So the different characters in the book do have their chapters have different styles. And I can actually find myself thinking in slightly different ways and talking to people in slightly different ways, depending on which character I was writing. So when I was kind of, so I'll be a slightly different person on the weeks when I was writing a Tobias chapter than I would be when I was writing a Marath chapter or an Orhan chapter or Thalia chapter. And then the short story, so I wrote a short story that was set in, it was a kind of, it was fleshing out one of the little sort of myths that's mentioned a couple of times in the books. And that was written in a very, very kind of cold, distance prose style. It was kind of I really enjoyed writing it, but I, I could see it in my head as very kind of clear, kind of crystalline, quite cold. It, it was, a lot of it was set on a great big tower that's high up above the clouds and it's very cold, blue, cold air. And it, it felt like that. It kind of, I could kind of taste it like that and smell it like that when I was writing it. And the prose was, but that I wasn't, I intended to write it like that. It, 
it just as I started writing that story that was how it shapes itself and that's how it sounded in my head well as the short story I wrote about Tobias was um I get I could just hear I can hear his voice so clearly now that it just kind of comes out like that and actually and it's been interesting writing the um the sort of serial thing that Mike and I have been writing for Grimdark magazine where I've been using different voices and in fact some of them occasionally I'll be writing the voice of a character that Mike had created and that was really interesting um kind of hearing myself writing the different characters and I can kind of again I can kind of hear them and taste them and feel them and I just kind of know the different ways of writing and the different the different ways that they describe things or that they'd respond to things it gets slightly frustrating almost sometimes because it's like well this character would respond to seeing this landscape in this way but unfortunately i'm not writing their point of view i'm writing a different person's point of view and they won't see it like that <laughs> so kind of, but it's this is very kind of organic it's not chosen so um i mean i'll do things that i will know i will have a sort of strong sense of in the in the novels that okay we've had a very long we've had a chapter which is very long and very tangly and very kind of pro, very there's been very little dialogue there's been lots of interior stuff there's been lots of landscape descriptions so we need to pull, have now a section of short snappy dialogue in a totally different voice and i can kind of hear that and just have a sense of that but it's not like okay it's not like it's planned in advance i will write these chapters like this and then i'll write this chapter next i just kind of um, I just kind of feel it and hear it then I know that that's the way it needs to be it's, um, it's just it's how the story tells itself to me imagining I haven't read any of this collaboration yet but I'm imagining a collaboration <laughs> no one ever between, between you and Mike reading like uh, the Iliad with a lot more cursing and description of bodily fluids <laughs> it's half written by Fletcher, so there'll be somebody spitting and and probably snot. Exactly, peeing. One book, one, book, one character. And, and poop, and poop, and another one has a cold and forever. It's like, oh, it's not Fletcher. <laughs> um, we're going to continue with this discussion in just a second, but first of all, we're going to pause for our featured book of the week, uh, which is by Anna. Anna, would you like to tell us about this episode's featured book? Oh my goodness. Um, I'm totally unprepared for any of this. Um, I suppose I probably ought to feature my own books, really. Um, my publisher suggests that would be a good plan. Okay, so um, this one, this is my first one. The Court of Broken Knives. You probably don't want to read books two and three. You probably don't want to read books two and three, unless you've read that one first. Um, unless you're uh, particularly determined to really have no idea what's going on. Um, <laughs> It is very grimdark. Uh, I'm regularly described as being incredibly nihilistic, but also intensely romantic, which is probably the right way of looking at it. Uh, I think um, it's a very, I, I write very simple stories. This is a very simple story. It's a story about a young man with a secret past. This, this young man, in fact, sorry about this chap. She's holding up a figurine at the moment. It is. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I forgot. Yes. Yes, I'm not sure. I'm getting confused whether this is video or audio. Um, yeah, it's, it is a bit confusing because it is both. Um, it will go on YouTube and it will also be on podcasting. So, yeah, I, that's why I have to sometimes narrate things like a weird... So for those of you who <laughs> <on this, laughs> haven't got YouTube, <laughs> those of you who are listening to this on your phone, um, I'm holding up a small figurine of a bloke holding a sword. Thank you. It is a, it's a very simple story about a young man. The, the whole... The trilogy is a very simple story about a young man fulfilling his destiny. Book one is, I guess, his youth. Book two is his realisation of who he is. Book three is his kind of decline and ending. I mean, you can almost read it as book one is the kind of pre-origin story prequel and then books two and three are the story or book one and two are the kind of the stories of his triumph and then book three is the kind of epilogue. It's um, it's very much influenced by the story of the history, the life of Alexander the Great, who is one of the characters I st studied his 
studied Alexander the Great as my special subject when I did my undergraduate degree. It's kind of based on characters like, yeah, uh, historical characters like Alexander the Great, mythical characters like Achilles, Cullen. It's that, what would it feel like to be that per what would it feel like to be that kind of extreme, extraordinary, kind of violent? What what would it feel like to be that person? Most books about Alexander, for example, are written from the point of view of one of his friends. So one of the him, so Mary Renault wrote The Persian Boy from the point of view of the Goas, who's Alexander's lover. Um, Christian Cameron wrote Alexander, God of War, from the point of view of Ptolemy, because it's trying to imagine yourself in the mind of that character. That kind of, it's kind of putting yourself in the mindset of this kind of superhuman being who doesn't have limits and trying to kind of experience that. It wasn't created, I didn't intend for it to be that story. It came out like that. I'm doing a really bad book job. No, that sounds awesome. I am actually very excited oh, yeah. to read that now. I've um it's very, there's um there's a lot of military stuff. It's by the time I was writing book three, my agent started introducing me to people as a military someone who writes military fiction, it just happens to have dragons in it. Because I um <laughs> good combos are based on real battles from classical history. I love I love those battles. I love kind of battle descriptions. I love military history. So it's very, it's not a conventional modern fantasy novel. Um, Peter McLean actually really lovely described it as a kind of modern mythology. It's, um, I'm often compared to R. Scott Baker, which I'm delighted to see. I've, ne I've never met Baker. I've, I've nearly met him. I spent half an hour at queue at the Worldcon once because it was going to one panel he was supposed to be on and then we got told when we'd all sat down on the front row that actually wasn't turning up and he had to sit through a really rubbish panel that he wasn't in but um, I've never <laughs> met him in that kind of Ericsson Baker kind of space of very kind of archaic world military sort of fantasy um, Baker and Ericsson are both authors I respect hugely for the way they create they sort of they basically create alternative ancient histories. It's almost like when you've read, I've read the Iliad loads of times, and actually I've kind of, you know, I, I can't face reading it again, so I'll go and read someone else's. Someone <laughs> else's Iliad. <laughs> their own world. It's that kind of sense. Um, and I, I mean, I kind of grew up reading people like Rosemary Sutcliffe and Mary Stewart and that kind of historical tradition of telling, retelling mythology and retelling historical. So, archaic historical stuff she Mary Rosemary so Rosemary Sutcliffe wrote about Boudicca and she writes about King Arthur and she wrote about um she has a wonderful novel about uh Asibiades. so it's that kind of you know archaic history but it's not a kind of modern uh sort of it's not in the kind of modern style of fantasy as a it's very much that kind of slightly kind of strange archaic not actually that much happening for large periods, kind of just creating a world and setting and sort of telling quite a simple story within that world. Awesome. Um, um, so that is The Court of Broken Knives by Anna Smith Bark. And I definitely that. think um, that if anyone is wanting to kind of see what we're talking about in terms of your distinctive prose style and everything, just reading like the first couple of pages of that book is going to throw them very deeply into what kind of makes your writing unique um and that's all I've, I've read of it so far although i certainly do plan to read the entire book especially now that you've described it as alexander the great from his perspective because he's a very fascinating person to me um yeah it's it, a wonderful starting paragraph it reads knives <laughs> <laughs> i wonder what she said they took it back they took it, went all the way back to the bookshop and took it back after i read the first paragraph really <laughs> It is pretty um, polarizing, I've had that, I think. I've had that happen too with my books, yeah. Yeah, no, it is pretty polarizing. It's, um, I think the crucial thing is don't try and read it really quickly. I've had reviews of people who try and, you know, people who do a lot of book reviews, so they're like, okay, I'll read this in two days. 
and then they haven't got a clue what's going on because it's kind of it is not it's not an easy read it's not a kind of I shall just quickly skim through this kind yeah. of you're not being spoon-fed. You might if you if you just needed something quick to read while you were waiting for a bus or something. It's really not totally lost. It's um. It's like a demanding and very kind of like densely immersive style of prose. It's fairly I dense, yeah. Mm. It's um, and if you read it, there are all kinds of joke in jokes and references to things that I've got. Keep thinking I want to see some kind of treasure, sort of treasure hunt thing about all the different. Reference, bizarre, incredible reference, bizarre references. I've got into things. I've got things in other people's books and great literature and just stupid in jokes and things I've got in it. Um, because there's loads of them and no one ever picks them up. Um, there's a whole load of stuff in chapter two about a big red rock, and to me it's really obvious that's the big red rock in the beginning of the wasteland, coming under the shadow of this big red rock, and no one sees that. But that whole scene, the beginning of chapter two, like most of the book, actually kind of fell out of this kind of. I'm going to write a whole load of stuff about this big red rock because it just <laughs> so it's like okay, we'll just keep writing about this. this and there's loads of stuff. Stupid question, but what is what is the big red rock? Is this some historical reference? It's just a, it's a random line in the wasteland. It's the T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. Um, ah, I see. Yes, there's just a line, random line in Eliot in the wasteland, coming under the shadow of this big red rock. So I then wrote an entire, so Tobias has a whole paragraph about how much he's enjoying sitting in the shade of this big red rock. And I think no one's ever noticed that that's where it goes. <laughs> so they all matters of reference to lilac as well, because there's reference to lilac. There's a one line about lilac in the wasteland. And it's, it's, there's a load of stuff. If you went through it, you could find like references to every book I've ever read, I think, in the book, in my books. And it's all just stuck in there. And um, yeah, no one's ever noticed them. But, um. I love stuff like that. I, I, I tend to do stuff like that in mine. Uh, I tend to name things. If, if I've got a tavern, I quite often name it after another book or something in a book. I, I like in one of my books, I have a tavern called The Golden Fool, which is quite clearly a Robin Hobb reference. Uh, not that anybody ever seems to get them. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I love putting like little homages to, to books I've read or to films I've watched and loved or even games I've played. I've, I've got a line in like my first book, The Heresy Within, which is like taken directly from World of Warcraft, just because I spent so much time in that game. I loved it so much. I was like, I'm going to have that line in it. Yeah. So One of the perks of the job, that's for sure. Doing <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's so, um, and just the whole thing's like, um, several of the places in Saw Lost in The Course of Broken Knives are real places. So there's all this stuff there's this stuff about the the house of three um, house of three corners on the street of the south, which is run by three sisters, and that is the coffee shop called Coffee Corner, on South Street, which was really was run by three sisters, where I wrote most of the novel. And there's a pub called the Star in the East, which is a pub called the Star, which is run by some friends of mine, and it's just so lovely having that, and no one else is going to know. But I <laughs> love doing stuff. Like that. No, I love doing stuff like. That. It's I've always I still today even follow the just the old form follows function for me. And I think um, a lot of things that new writers and I struggled with um, early on was what was the function of my story? You know, is it just supposed to be, is it supposed not just, but is it supposed to be fun, easily digestible um, uh, entertainment? Is it supposed to uh, create a certain impression or feeling, um, the story itself? Um, and uh, and that's, that's kind of how I chose and worked out how I wanted to tell um, the story in, in my books. Um, why I, why I chose present tense, why I chose like um, an omniscient, more omniscient POV that would then go in and out. Um, like Kareem Mahfouz actually nailed it when he said, when he talked about it being free indirect, indirect discourse, um, because I actually had that in mind. And he's the only one who's ever brought that up after reading, reading the books. And we all know Kareem, he's, yeah. <laughs> was studying for his studying for his masters at the time so he was studying all that kind of bizarre stuff so 
um, I, I, uh, I, I wanted to develop something that had an immediacy um, that would draw people in um, and it, even if it threw them a little off guard a little bit, I kind of wanted that because the situation um, of the story itself, I felt would throw people off guard anyway. Um, so I, uh, uh, I have like a certain amount of head hopping, right? Um, a lot of things that, that, that people say don't do in writing, I did specifically on purpose. Um, and, and some in the reviews and some of the views in, 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 including in some of the more recent ones, there are some people who really, really get it. They're like, I really had a hard time even for a hundred or 150 pages, but then all of a sudden there's this, there's this clarity of image where they feel like they're there and it's in 3D kind of, the, kind of between being there in the scene or actually watching it on a, you know, a big, uh, a big screen, um, which is the feeling that I wanted to bring across. And it's nice to see, I mean, some people really just don't like it and that's okay. Um, uh, but um, that, that was what I wanted to do. So my prose, the way I wrote it um, uh, specifically was trying to bring that out. So that's kind of how I came up with, with what I wanted to do. Um, and then there's more of an impressionist, um, and what Anna does from what I've read, it's it's it tells the story, but it's also giving these these impressions and these feelings and these senses that sometimes contradict, and that actually creates the atmosphere of the story world itself for me. That kind of prose. Um, I, mean, I, guess, I guess what I'm trying to do is. So the film, the, the films, I've, I always, actually a lot of people talk about books about being quite so very cinematic. And I think, cause I, I do see, I'm definitely one of those people who sees what I'm reading. Mm -hmm. I see when I'm writing, I see it and I really am living it. But actually when I think, when people ask me my, um, sort of what's really influenced it, when I actually start think, talking about, I often end up talking about film very early on in talking about, you know, what books I really love and books that have been influenced big influence on me. I actually start talking about films and I actually start talking about kind of quite complex films like, um, so I remember going to see The Thin Red Line, which is a quite astonishing. It's a, um, oh, Terence, what's his name? Um, Terence Malick film about, oh, yeah, I think it was, yeah. it was the film he did after he hadn't done another, he, he hadn't, it was the his first film for years. He does them about, he seems to bang one out every month now, but he, it's his first film for years and it's set, it's about some US soldiers on an island somewhere in the Pacific and there's just lots of kind of astonishing imagery, actually very, very beautiful imagery. There's a really strong, incredibly clear memory I have of an image of a soldier in the kind of classic little sort of, his classic um, hat, the sort of classic Second World War American jungle warfare sort of little pith helmet thing dead and sort of sinking into this incredibly kind of rotting green lush you imagine what it would be for a body to sort of sink into this sort of in unstable soaking jungle environment these kind of green green leaves all covered in water because things just wet and liquid and rotting and it's an astonishingly beautiful image and then sort of things like David Lynch where you get those incredibly beautiful images and you get sound drifting over little snatches of sound and you get voiceovers which are totally contradictory to what's going on in this image what's actually going on the screen or that contradict what's going on the screen or mm -hmm. kind of something like I mean June is actually huge Lynch's June is a huge influence on me the way you get the kind of voiceovers and the imagery and there's kind of huge battle scenes he has and things it's that that's what I'm that's what I it's I, when I say trying to do it's not conscious but that that's where I'm coming from Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't, when I say trying, I don't mean I'm kind of consciously sitting down like today I will do a scene where there's, but it's trying to get that kind of sense of things cutting across each other. So you have the visual sense and then you have a sense of different kind of, you have the sense of the sound coming over the top and the kind of differences of the kind of cross-cutting cross and different, different jumping between different images 
having sound that might give you contradict the imagery or having a voiceover which contradicts the imagery or then changes what you're seeing think you're seeing in the imagery and I'm sort of that for me is what I'm trying to do when I write is create I'm trying to write beyond just words I'm trying to write everything um mm-hmm. and that because I guess kind of poetry does that for me sometimes but I've just spent a lot of time looking at things like poetry with poetry over a films over a kind of silent cinema or something and that that's the kind of that's something what I'm trying to do somehow or that experience of reading a really good book while you've got music on or some really good music on or something I had a really sublime evening afternoon once of reading the entire of N. John Harrison's Viriconium with an amazing cd that's um it's Gregorian chanting with jazz saxophone over the top of it and that was like a sublime moment of my life. It's trying to recreate that. It's trying to come and recreate the whole visual and oral and kind of sensory experience. Mm-hmm. In words, the layout on the page matter a lot to me. How it looks on the page. I spend a lot of I spend so much time messing around with things like: is this just a sentence break, or is it a paragraph break, or is it in fact a whole kind of section break? And I'll do that again and again and again. Um, and occasionally I think, should I put this in italics? And I put it in italics, I think, no, it shouldn't be in italics. Um, and that, which again comes from poetry because they're kind of type fonts and the different type fonts. My dad actually had a whole, he produced a book and he had to kind of pulp the proof and start again because one page of one line, they've got the type font wrong. Yeah, he didn't like the type font. He had all different type fonts. And, um, and it, it's like that kind of sense of what it looks like on the page as well. But um, so I don't follow any of the kind of writing rules. That was just saying about not, not head hopping and things. And it's funny because lots of people kind of say, we well, mustn't do that and things. If you read, say, George Eliot, Middlemarch, which is widely agreed to be probably the greatest novel in English of the 19th century and probably one of the greatest novels ever written, she head hops all the time. She doesn't have that kind of, you know, there are sections which are clearly told from, there are two different storylines, one of which is basically told from Lydgate's point of view, one of which is basically told from Dorothea's point of view. But within that, you'll kind of have, you'll have a little, she'll zoom in on what one character's thinking about something. And then she'll kind of zoom out again and talk about what's going on in the town and different people and the kind of the whole sort of, so, and what, what people in the town in general are thinking about and tell you about the action. And then she'll go into someone else's head. And that... <laughs> It was once more, much more common than it is. Yeah, it, um, it only began, uh, fantasy in particular, only began to go into the really tight uh, third uh, person um, points of view um, in the last 30, 40 decade, or three or four decades, actually, maybe just the last three. Um, yeah, kind of notion of moving. Starting, but um, yeah, the, the third person omniscient was the most common yeah and then you go into different people's perspectives it's um I mean, in fact there's what's often held up as the single greatest one of the single greatest line greatest sections of literature ever which is the, the section at the end of the odyssey where odysseus and penelope are back together again and penelope has accepted that odysseus is who he says she he is and they embrace, and you go into the sentence from Odysseus's point of view, mm-hmm. and how you come out from Penelope's, or maybe it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. In sentence, you're moving from one per one. So they're a married, they're an old married couple, and they've been married for twenty years, but they've been separated for a longer ten years. But the kind of way that you know, they're such a kind of they're supposed to be the perfect marriage, mm-hmm. and you go in, go into it from one of them's point of view, and come out of the same sentence from the other's point of view. Yeah. And okay, I'm not saying, like, hey, that's great. You know, <laughs> Do that all the matter. time. It doesn't matter if your sentence completely loses it. So what was the subject on? It's just by the time you've written such a long, wandering sentence that by the time it comes out, you've actually flipped the sentence and the object, subject and the object. <laughs> you know, that, what is done there, and it's so actually unconscious, you don't really notice. There's no point. You think, hang on, from this comma onwards, suddenly it shifted perspective. It's, it's just absolutely astonishing. And that all those kind of people are all sort of, you know, there are basic rules about things like you do probably need to know what's going on. Um, 
I bang on about James Elroy all the time, and my agent was absolutely horrified because his um, his fourth book in the L.A. Noir Quartet, um, White Jazz. I mean, that is it is unreadable, basically. Because <laughs> 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 you have no you have no idea what's going on. So there is some kind of you know, your your reader needs to know what's going on, and they need to know things like who's speaking. Or who's have a sense of who's speaking, or who's um, basically what's happening, and that and things like how did they just get out of that? There's there are passages where you just think I don't I don't know what just happened. Someone just did something really. There's the classic thing in fantasy actually, just in sort of people writing fight scenes and they don't write it very well. And like I have no idea. Someone just did something really bizarre with their sword, which somehow made they killed six guards. But I just cannot visualize that. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> that sort of sense of having people be actually be able to just basically understand what's going on have some kind of sense of being able to actually follow the sentence and work out what's going on but beyond that when people talk about rules and things just like just just what there are no rules if if it sounds good and it has a positive and if it if it works and yeah. other people enjoy it or other people enjoy it or it, it works. Well, if it works, it works. Yeah. So a certain you level of clarity is, is important. A, um, but yeah, you find your voice. can balance that with your voice. Yes. Your style. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I end up switching. I will sometimes move into the present tense for a little while and then move back into the past tense, which mm -hmm. is kind of jarring. But again, if it if it works, it it works. I will sometimes actually move between first and third person or third and first person. And again, if it... it you kind of know when it works. If it works, it works. And if someone in it, if it convey, if it does what you want it to do, what you're trying to make it do in terms of conveying something. So first person present is the most immediate, is intensely immediate. So fight scenes in first person present are just intense in a way that other for other kind of other voices aren't. If that works, and that works. It's kind of it's how you do it, and just kind of and it's having the conviction to carry it off as well. You can tell with people's prose, you can tell when they're scared and they think this isn't working. Or you can tell when they're laboring and thinking, I'm going to try and do something a bit clever here, or I'm going to try and do something a bit literary here. And it's just labored. It's yeah. when people are just doing what, it's just going with it. That's the point when it's kind of. And there's such, there's such a fine line between, between horny and working between forced and working between wow. you know and 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 I, I i i have to admit i'm the worst judge with my own writing as to i i i feel like it's working but i don't know if other people will think it's working i i never know until i hear later from from reviews and such that's also what things like so i spend a lot of time thinking about what i've just written I spend far more time thinking about what I've written, not what I'm going to write necessarily, but so much, but what I've, what I've written. I spend a lot of time thinking about it mm -hmm. and works. I edit an awful lot as so I'm going along. I don't, so I don't have second and third drafts. I write to the end and then it's done. I don't read, I don't do redrafts and that. I never quite understand what people are talking about when they talk about things like they're on a third draft or something, because I just I write. Do. I do a lot of drafts. I have to. I edit hugely as I'm going along. I read through stuff all the time as soon as I've written it and I think about it. But that is what that kind of editing process is for. It's you absolutely being in the moment of writing and then thinking, does this work? Have I just got too carried away here? Is this forced? Was this a really bad day? And it just isn't working. And that's what an editor's for as well. Mm -hmm. That's for getting someone else to say, look, this is totally self-indulgent. <laughs> and again, you can, you can tell there's a huge amount of time where I look at something and think, I just, I really desperately wanted to write this scene and I really, really wanted to write this scene and it's just not anything to do with the book. It's just, <laughs> and you know, you need to get, and it's that just thinking about having a mind, having part of your mind a lot, thinking about, is this, am I, why am I doing it like this? Why have I written it like this? Is this too much? Is this too empurpled? Yeah, having that kind of okay, so I'd be having that sort of sense of okay, so I need to look at it 
I'm going to look at my prose and I have had a very long section of very deep in purple descriptive text. So I probably ought to pull away to something else and thinking about that kind of thinking about the whole thing as a kind of just thinking about I sort of think I actually think about my writing a lot and my prose and what I'm doing with it a lot in the same way I might think about I don't know what I'm going to wear for an, or an outfit what kind of outfit I'm going to wear for a party or like if you're planning a menu and think about how you balance things and kind of um so just thinking about kind of okay I've had a really really rich heavy stodgy bit here so I need to balance it with some light jokey banter and that kind of in the same way you might think well I'm probably not going to do no cheese on toast followed by cheese fondue followed by cheese and biscuits maybe I'll just think about that so, you know do you see what I mean that's a that's, that a, kind of, that's a neat practical way to think about approaching prose yeah, yeah. So how kind of that balance of kind of okay we've just had some in the, even in rewrites yeah yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Think not even. Yeah, just this think. Pair of, this pair of shoes, I thought, I thought it worked with this outfit, but it does not. Yeah, I need yeah. to wear this yeah. pair of shoes. You have more than yeah. one pair of shoes, Dirk. <laughs> I have, I have Anna and I have talked about this. I have a stupid amount of shoes. A stupid <laughs> amount. I've slowed way down, but I have yeah, a stupid amount of shoes. Um, we're going to have to wrap this episode up. Uh, we've almost gone 50 minutes or so, but this has been a really good discussion. Um, you can always do it as a two-parter. It'll be fine. Yeah, I might, might have to do that. But um, just quickly before we head off, what would you say, we'll go around with each of us and just say what our number one tip would be for um, beginning writers who want to try to improve their prose. Uh, so yeah, just quickly, we can all go around. Um, Rob, do you want to start off? Um, read. Mm -hmm. Nice. <laughs> I love it. Read right. books, read many books and, and, you know, read challenging books like Anna's maybe. Just, just as a, just as a practical exercise. Yes. Read, read a lot of books, but, um, I really think the, uh, the copying, trying to copy style, um, as exercises, not, not for your book, but as exercises to find your own voice, copy, uh, try to copy styles of authors that you really, really enjoy. And then um, have somebody else, you might not be the best judge, have somebody else read the two and see where they see differences or where they see it's the same. And then once you've done a few of those, um, try combining them. Um, try um, combining a little, uh, like I did, a little Tolkien with a, a little Zelazny and see what happens um, mm. and, and those kinds of things. And um, that, that, that ha helped me a lot. Read, read books by people that um, uh, Mike Carey, M.R. Carey, I think is one of the, one of the greatest geniuses at uh, voice um, right now because his, his books just they capture, they, ca they all have very distinctive voices. Um, I was first, the first book I read of his was Girl With All the Gifts. And I, one of the very first things that happened was I was realized that I was blown away by his ability to create a voice in these different chapters from these different characters' points of view. Um, and then he really takes it another another step in his uh, newest series, the, the Books of Coley. Um, and uh, he uses more of a, of, of a vernacular that can be hard to get into at first, but it really starts to like become such an integral part of the character in the story. Um, book, books like that, I think, I think are a huge, a huge, were a huge influence on me. So that would be my advice. Mike? Uh, uh, copying was the first thing that I did. I tried to write uh, Snow Crash, basically. That's uh, Ghosts of Tomorrow. It's me trying to write Snow Crash and just failing abysmally. Uh, but really what worked for me and what I did with, with Beyond Redemption um, is I stopped trying. Uh, <laughs> I put no real thought into it. I just wrote what I wanted to write. I wrote the descriptions I wanted. I wanted to, the way I pictured it in my head, I put it on the page. Um, it was effortless and when I stopped trying that's when I sort of found I guess what is perhaps my voice 
So uh, if you're trying, it's probably not working. It's effortless. You're there. I don't because I I am an anathema to effort. I don't like trying. I don't like doing hard things. It's been a common theme in the episodes. Yeah. So I'd say yeah. I mean, read a lot and read a lot of very different books. I always get slightly horrified by people who say they only read within the genre. Yeah, there's a whole different range of voices that you're totally cutting yourself off from. Mm-hmm. If you only read within the genre, you're just going to end up in a kind of echo. It, it will just be an echo, basically an echo chamber. It's reading a really wide range of different genres and styles and books from different periods to really get a real exposure to language and how a whole vast different styles of what people can do with language and the possibilities of language and different voices so yeah kind of go go away and read people like Dickens and Thackeray and mm-hmm. Eliot and you know go and read great literature from all over the go and read books from all over authors all over the world and in all different voices go away and read Toni Morrison go away and read books which are not within fantasy in the slightest are a new way of different ways of telling stories i mean whether you're writing whether it's high fantasy or jane austen it's still basically stories about people and they're trying to overcome something and they're trying to find some kind of resolution and the more different voices you expose yourself to and the different styles of prose you expose yourself to just the better inevitably your own prose will become and yeah also yes Mike said, yes, don't don't try sitting down and thinking, today I'm going to write this in this, I'm going to try and write this book in this way. I'm going to try and write this book like this other, like this author who I idolise or something. It's almost inevitably going to lead you just kind of, you'll just hear that voice in your head saying you're failing, you're failing all the time. It's that point where you're just trying to be you rather than being someone else. I mean, by all means, I think I'm going to aspire to write this book to be as good as someone else but it's that just trying not to think about what you're doing trying to kind of you know that thing always people always say about I don't know how I'm doing this and if I start trying to work out how I'm doing it I will stop um that kind of if you start if you start really thinking about what you're doing then there's a voice in your head always saying well this this is a bit this this is a bit like the person I want it to be like then you're always kind of critiquing yourself just just relax and just do your thing okay awesome you know and and i think always realize that when you think that it just sucks and you just don't know what you're doing um you're not alone Uh, (laughs) yes yes that idea i mean everyone we all go back to our own books i've only ever run into one author who said no i don't i've never had i never have those thoughts i never have second (laughs) thoughts about my writing one one author who said that um, yeah no I kind of I mean there are bits um, still I will open one of my books and think I can't believe I wrote this I there are bits I just think my god I can't believe yeah. I wrote that no me too I'll there pick are the up bits you just think Yeesh! I, I wish I could that. change that slightly differently yeah and it's that yeah, never no, read your old works ever. Anytime yes, I pick up one, yes, anytime I pick up one of Rob or, or Mike's books I'm like yeah I wrote that yeah <laughs> because I did it's true. Awesome. All right. Well, on that note, I think that's a good place to wrap up our first episode. Um, Anna will be back for some more episodes in the future. So please be sure to subscribe to this if you want to hear more. Um, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Ciao. All right. See you, everybody. Thank you for listening to Wizards, Warriors, and Words. We hope you learned something useful. We love hearing from our listeners. Our email is wizardswarriorswords at gmail.com which you can also find in the show notes. I personally read and respond to every email, so feel free to let us know what you thought about this episode. We'd also love to hear your questions. Send in a question via that email, wizardswarriorswords at gmail.com, and we might even answer it on the show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and write a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps more people discover the show. Wizards, Warriors, and Words is jointly hosted by Dirk Ashton, Michael R. Fletcher, Rob J. Hayes, and Jed Hearn. Our music comes from Michael R. Fletcher, and our artwork is by Felix Ortiz. Thank you again for listening.
Now go and write extraordinary stories. We'll see you next time. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.